Welcome to Charlotte Reader's Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show where we meet Charlotte area authors and those who visit the Queen City, and we hear them read their work. Support for Charlotte Reader's Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, conveniently located in Park Road Shopping Center. And by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. For more information about these book-minded sponsors who help authors give voice to their written words, please visit them online at parkroadbooks.com and cmlibrary.org or drop by the bookstore or any library branch. In today's episode, we meet author Frank Morelli, a middle school teacher whose writing talent led him to write his well-received debut novel, No Sad Songs, about a teenager forced by the death of his parents to look after a grandfather suffering severe dementia. In addition to reading and discussing No Sad Songs, Frank discusses his essay about the death of his grandfather and introduces us to the first book in his recently published middle grade series. We start first with a reading from an early chapter in No Sad Songs entitled How to Find Yourself Alone. Host Landis Wade is committed to making this podcast worth your time. He's a recovering trial lawyer, award-winning author, book and dog lover, whose laid-back style encourages authors to read and talk about their published and emerging works. These are the stories that touch the emotions, followed by conversations that offer depth and insight into the readings and writing lives of the authors. This show is recorded in the well-equipped podcast studio at Advent Coworking right here in the Belmont community near Uptown Charlotte. You can find links and information about this episode in the show notes at our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the stories. I'm your host, Landis Wade. Thank you for listening. Thank God my duty was only a one-night thing. One night. Just one night. I smacked the plunger and watched the brown sludge whirlpool its way down the drain. The bathroom reeked of melon-scented poop not a good candidate for Chanel's fall line of perfume. I hefted Grandpa out of his swamp and wrapped him in a towel. He just stood there and dripped water on the floor. I'd have to dry him, too. Nasty. I started with his white mane. It was shaggy and thin and only partly damp, but it was good enough. Ah, unhand me! I didn't respond. Just tried to mop as much moisture off him as I could before I puked. Dad's robe would do the rest. I wrestled Grandpa out of the bathroom like a prisoner of war and lifted him into bed. John had fitted the mattress with a clean, crisp set of sheets. The only sign that anything out of the ordinary had happened in the room was the faint smell of disinfectant in the air. I read to Grandpa from Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass. We had studied a few passages in Mrs. Alonzo's 11th grade English class. Everyone thought it sucked, but they don't appreciate good poetry like I do. Call me weird. My classmates did. Grandpa's eyelids drooped it shut as I read. I've heard what the talkers were talking, the talk of the beginning and the end, but I do not talk of the beginning or the end. John had told his parents he'd probably spend the night, so he was in the basement playing more video games. The kid was an addict. Hours had passed between our Madden marathon and fumigation time. It had to be maybe two or three in the morning at that point, and the phone rang at two or three in the morning. Nothing good ever comes from a phone ringing at that hour. There's never a crazy radio host on the other end offering a cash prize out of the blue. There's never one of your teachers just getting in touch to cancel the homework assignment you forgot was due the next day. It's never, ever good. 
so my heart did little flip-flops in my chest, and Grandpa's eyes fluttered open. Er, what? I placed my hand on his forehead to keep him calm, maybe to keep me calm. John, I shouted as the shrill bell vibrated through my stomach. Can you get that? He either heard me, or it was a wrong number, because the ringing stopped at once. I continued reading from Whitman. Will never be any perfection than there is now, nor any more heaven or hell than there is now. And then I heard footsteps on the stairs, in the hall, slowly shuffling, holding back. Gabe, John said with a waver in his voice, it's the police. A jolt of electricity shot up from my feet, through my spine, and burned in my ears. I felt the blood in my face, every red cell, each tiny molecule bubbling and brewing. I saw a hand reach for the phone. Was it mine? I couldn't tell. I heard the voice on the other end, very official, deep, monotone, gambling, left early, Atlantic City Expressway, fell asleep, they were gone, not coming back, forever, yes, forever, no, surely, can't be right, this only happens to other people, please come to identify the bodies, yes, sir, John's hand on my shoulder, warm tears on my cheek, alone, just me and Gramps, and no one could protect me, not even John. Frank Morelli's debut young adult novel, No Sad Songs, 2018, was a 2019 Yossa Quick Picks for Reluctant Readers nominee and a Vox Top Hope Punk title. His fiction and essays have appeared in numerous publications, including the Saturday Evening Post, Cobalt Review, Philadelphia Stories, and Jersey Devil Press. The first book in his debut middle grade series, Please Return to Norbert M. Finkelstein, came out in September 2019. A Philadelphia native, Frank's life was transformed when he accepted a teaching fellowship in the NYC public schools and discovered that a lifetime spent eating cafeteria tater tots would be a small price to pay for a chance to shape the future. He continues to split time between the page and the classroom and will forever be amazed by how each one enriches the other. Frank now lives in High Point, North Carolina with his best friend and muse, their obnoxious alley cat, and 200 pounds worth of dog. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Hey, Frank, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Landis. Yeah, so you're a middle grade teacher. <laughs> I am. Some people call me slightly uh, insane for doing that, but yeah. I, I, will, I would say that it's probably one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life. And why is that? Well, I wasn't a person that ever wanted to be a teacher. I watched my, my mother uh, teach for about 20 years, and uh, I saw how difficult it was and how little money she made. So one of the things that I wanted to do was have a job that made more money, and I told everybody I would become a doctor because, you know, <laughs> who doesn't want a doctor in their family? Um, forgot about the part where I'm afraid of blood. And, yeah. uh, you know, I just kind of fell into teaching by chance. Um, I was at a point in my life where I didn't really know what direction I wanted to go into, and New York City public schools desperately needed teachers, so I decided I would just give it a try. And just being in the classroom, first of all, gave me time to to um, get my thoughts moving towards writing, but at the same time, it gave me inspiration because every single day, you come in contact with the type of readers that you're writing books for, and you get a chance to see what kinds of things interest them. You get a chance to see what kinds of things, what kind of problems they have in their lives. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that it really added to 
the stories that I was always kind of thinking in my head. And then did you, did you pick uh, middle school or did middle school pick you? That's a great question. <laughs> uh, when I when I joined uh, New York City Public Schools, yeah, there wasn't really a choice. It was either going to be middle school or high school, and they kind of just threw you into a school where they needed you most, and I just wound up in teaching eighth grade. And I remember when they told me that, I thought to myself, oh, my goodness, because I've heard so many horror stories about how terrible it is to teach middle grade level students and how they turn into you know, monsters at that time of their lives. But I found pretty quickly that that is absolutely the opposite of the truth, at least in my in my experience. And uh, I just felt like it was a perfect age level for me. For one reason, I don't know that I've ever actually progressed beyond middle school in my mind. <laughs> and for the other reason, uh, just you get a, a group of students who are still really eager to learn, but at the same time, they're advanced enough on an academic level to kind of go, go pretty far into, into literature. And, and now, what subjects do you teach? I, I teach uh, language arts, which is basically mm. a writing class, and then I also teach literature, which is, which is reading. Now, you said something a moment ago um, about your readers. Um, so you you see your readers as the very people that you're teaching. Yeah, and it, always, it wasn't always like that. I, when I first started writing, I, uh, I thought that, you know, I was going to write for adults and write these espionage novels and yeah. all kinds of stuff. Um, and then when I started to really sit down and examine my writing, I realized that that wasn't the kind of writer that I really was. I was trying to be something that I wasn't. I had already been teaching for maybe 10 years when I, when I decided I was going to start to write young adult and middle grade stuff. And, uh, and I just thought to myself, what am I doing? I have a group of students in front of me every single day that are showing me the types of things that should be in books today. And, and I think I need to use that, use my voice and, and get that out there in the world. So it was kind of just fit lockstep for me in my life. Mm. Yeah. And so in No Sad Songs, your protagonist is a uh, high school student. And then in the book we're going to talk about that came out in September, uh, you're, you're back down into the middle grades, right? That's right. And, and I noticed that in your writing, um, you write in first person and no sad songs. Did you did you do that as well in the other? I love writing in first person. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm the type of person that likes to kind of stand around in somebody else's shoes and kind of walk around and, and learn their experiences. One of the reasons why I decided to use first person and no sad songs is because I wanted to kind of live the life of this youth caregiver that I almost had the the unfortunate opportunity to become when I was a teenager, but I had my parents around to kind of protect me there. And I just kind of wanted to live that that life. So being able to write in the first person allowed me to kind of channel my own experiences through the character and and then pick up on that character's experiences as well. So I, I kind of like to write in first person. I don't have a rule against writing in other points of view, but it just feels like for this this particular age group, both middle grade and young adult, they respond really, readers respond really well to hearing the voice of the actual character and, and feeling like they're actually on the page with them. And there's a lot of humor, uh, you know, embedded within this poignant story. I mean, in, 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 the, in the conversations that this <laughs> protagonist has in his head, you know, and with others, but it, it's very much high school, and I'm sure this other book as well is, is you know, middle school. So... Do you hear that in the classroom? Do you take notes about what's going on when you're passing down the hallway? I mean, do you, do they, or do you just remember from your days? All of that is true, I would yeah. say. Uh, I, I think that, first of all, humor is, is basically a major part of my life. I, I don't think I do anything or take anything very seriously, uh, and it's by design. Part of that is from my experience dealing with, with Alzheimer's in my life and knowing that, you know, when you're in a situation where things seem dire, Sometimes the only way to get through it is 
through humor and through laughing, being able to, to take the small moments and, and kind of laugh about them, and it kind of raises your spirits. In my classroom, yeah, I'm, I'm constantly cracking jokes myself. I think I might be the biggest class clown in the class, which might, which might be a problem, I guess. Mm. But I like to... Uh, if you're trying to keep discipline. <laughs> yeah. I like to bring humor into, into stories that have a, a, seri- a serious bent to them. Because I think that that is, is kind of how human beings get through those difficult times, is that we're, we're able to laugh at things that normally would be pretty dire in your life, but then you, you can wind up getting through it by seeing the lighthearted parts of it. Are you, are you, do you become, are there ever moments in your classroom, you teach language arts and, and writing, where you're inspired by what these young, young kids are writing? Oh, there's constantly times when I read a story that uh, we do a lot of creative writing in my class, and uh, there's a constantly times when I read a story and I thought and I think to myself, I really wish I would have thought of that idea, <laughs> or, or I'm impressed by a student who's 12 or 13 years old putting these putting these sentences together and these words together that are just so poetic, and I think back to myself when I was 13 or 14 years old, and I definitely could not do that. So yeah, I'm I'm, I'm inspired by seeing the, the progress that my students make, and then it, I think it kind of pushes me to want to do even better with mm. with my craft well no sad songs as i said it, it it's a story uh that has humor in it but also it's a story that has a serious side as well and and you say that some of that uh came from your own uh experiences in life talk about that when I was a teenager, about 14 years old, my grandfather was diagnosed with Pick's disease, which is a form of dementia. And he, um, at first, we didn't really notice it, or we noticed small changes in him. And I don't think we really wanted to accept what was happening. Um, but when he got the diagnosis, it all became real. And pretty quickly, we started to see decline in you know his memory, um, in his ability to socialize with people. And he lived in Philadelphia at the time where, when my parents lived in South Jersey and uh, they had him move into South Jersey to stay in a smaller apartment near, near their house so that they can kind of keep an eye on him. And, you know, as time, pa- as time passed, he, uh, he continued to, to decline and eventually he was basically living in my parents' house where they were his primary caregivers. So I basically watched them um, kind of put their lives on hold collectively and take care of my grandfather who was the man who had raised my father and mm-hmm. now the kind of the, re- the role reversal was taking place and i think you said to me when we were talking before the podcast that you felt a little guilty about how you behaved at a young age compared to this character that you wished you could have sort of sort of had the fortitude that the character in no sad songs has yeah, yeah. at some level gabe lascuda my, my my protagonist is like a do-over for myself give us that last name again gabe lascuda lascuda is that does that come from philly yeah it actually means <laughs> the shield which which is uh well, i don't think anybody's ever really asked me what his what his name means but but yeah. the last name means the shield and, and and i think that part of his his character in the book is that he's protecting his loved uh, ones but yeah. um yeah I, I definitely was not Gabe Lascuda, uh, when I was his age, um, I probably was a lot more selfish. Um, I th- sometimes looked at the responsibilities that my, my parents had as taking time away from our, our entire family life. Um, don't get me wrong, I was extremely upset and sad about what was going, going on with my grandfather, but at the same time, I was young enough to like have my own desires and wants, and I wanted to go in certain directions. And I just don't, don't think that as a youth caregiver, I would have made a very good one. So I wanted to write this book so that I could kind of live through it again, see what it would have been like if I didn't have my parents around there to kind of cushion the blow for me. And so, Frank, you wrote a piece um, 
reflecting on your grandfather called Requiem, right? I did. And just to give us a little feel for what was in your mind at the time, you're going to read, I think, the first paragraph and the last couple of paragraphs of this piece. Yeah, and just, just, to, just to set it up a little further, I, when I wrote this, I wrote this after I had written No Sad Songs, when, and this kind of feeling was still kind of fresh with me. And um, I wrote it about when my grandfather actually finally passed away and the feeling that I had left, left over. When we finally lost him, there was no pouring out of eyes like when my brother called me in my dorm room and blurted out, Sparky got hit by a car before say, even saying hello. When we lost him, I didn't buckle against the wall and feel the sharp edges of dry cinder blocks scratch the length of my, my back like when I got the phone call in my classroom that said she'd been in an accident and she was gone and she'd never sit across from me in her desk chair combo and listen to me drone on about nouns and verbs and figurative language. When we lost him, when the news finally spread from my mother's lips and trailed through miles of telephone cable and through the wiry cord into the receiver and burrowed deep down in my consciousness, when I finally accepted he was gone forever and never coming back, it occurred to me I didn't feel anything at all, or at least in my estimation, not what I was supposed to feel. And then I walked up the front steps of my parents' house, like I'd done a million times in my 18 years of residence there. But it felt different this time. Empty, drained of life, still. And we talked about the next day's funeral arrangements, and flowers, and prayer cards, and the hours of the viewing, and everything that meant absolutely nothing in the life of my grandfather, in his real life, the one he actually lived. And then we watched Letterman until my father's eyelids drooped, and he made his way upstairs to sleep for the final time before he laid his own father to rest forever. And that's when I felt the first warmth of sadness roll down one of my cheeks, and then the other, until the tears poured down on my mother's shoulders, and the sobs racked my body, and my mother's long red nails made trails up my spine, and her arms held me closer than I think they'd ever had before. That's when the relief and the guilt and the feelings of alienation all exploded in a single detonation, and I realized that my grandfather had finally become my grandfather again, even if I'd never be able to see him or touch him or hear his voice for the rest of my life. It's also when I realized there was only one way to beat Alzheimer's, and without a doubt, the battle was destined to culminate in a single swirling maelstrom of guilt, relief, and despair. And happiness, too, if you happen to be strong enough to allow the memories, the real memories, to shine through the storm. So, Frank, in this piece that you start out, um, you say in that first paragraph that you didn't know exactly how you were supposed to feel and that you weren't really connecting emotionally to what was going on. Is that because the illness had gone on for such a long time? Yes. Um, Alzheimer's is the kind of thing that, you know, a person can be battling it for years and years. My grandfather had it for about eight years. And it takes a real toll on you. It starts to really beat you down. You start to become desensitized to it a little bit. Um, I can remember feeling towards the end of my grandfather's life, like, why can't there just be some mercy for him? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there's obviously the stereotypical way to, to, to react to a loved one's death is to break down, to be really sad, and just to kind of be bawling. And none of that happened for me when I found out. In fact, in the first paragraph, I mentioned the time when my brother called me up. It was a couple months before my grandfather died to tell me that my, my, one of my, my dogs had died. And that, you know, set me off. That, mm-hmm. like, you know, I was, I was crying. 
Um, but but when I found out about my grandfather, that didn't happen. And I think a lot of it, the reason for it was because I just wanted him to, to just not have to deal with it anymore, to not have to go through the situation of not really knowing who he was or not being himself anymore. It was just sad to watch. And part of that was for myself. I didn't want to watch it. But the other part of it was just because I knew it was such a strain on him. And he felt like it felt to me like he was trapped inside of his own body and that there's parts of him that wanted to come out and be himself, but that he just couldn't do it anymore. So, you know, when he finally passed away, it was almost like relief. But as a, as a you know, freshman in college, I was kind of young. I hadn't dealt with death too many times. It just, I just didn't understand that feeling, how I, how I just felt cold about it. Mm. So I felt like I needed to write about it. But you, but you end this piece, um, and, it, and it, it really resonated with me because my father died last year and he'd had dementia. He'd always said, look, I, if this ever happens to me, I don't, I don't want to hang on. But the point you make here that if you happen to be strong enough to allow the memories the real memories to shine through the storm, then you can find the happiness, but also the emotion too. And I find that happening to me sometimes. I'll, I'll think about things, about the way he was before he lost some of his memory. And uh, that's when the emotion starts to come up, I think. At least for me it does. For me too. And I also think that's one of the ways that um, you can restore dignity to a person who had Alzheimer's and, and fought the battle. Because if you ever live through that situation in your life you'll notice that that per- it's really hard to, to retain that person's dignity mm. they become almost like like a child in a lot of ways and they're just not the person that everybody knows and um just being able to go back and remember that person the way they were thinking about their triumphs is a way to kind of restore that dignity which i think is important for anybody who's involved in, in, in alzheimer's kind of situation or cycle all right so let's uh that's a good kind of transition back to we got a character here who's dealing with the same emotions we've just been talking about he's lost his parents in the opening scene he's now got a grandfather who's not on a very functional level at, at this point They're, he's having to care for him he's having to go to high school um, of course early in the book his ne'er-do-well uncle shows up <laughs> and decides he, he's going to camp there too and yep. supposedly help the protagonist uh, whatever you might call help being because uh, he doesn't have a job, and he's kind of, so you've got this young protagonist, and he's trying to be very self-reliant, um, and he too in this book writes essays, much like you wrote Requiem, and he does it for his language arts teacher, and you've embedded these in the book along the way, giving us kind of a different look into the mindset of this individual. Where, where did that idea come from? Well, the idea came from from. First of all, me just having this strong love for the personal essay, I think it's just a great way to express yourself. But in the book, I felt like there needed to be this connection to who the person that Grant, that Gramps, his grandfather, used to be so that you can kind of see this person in the relationship that, that he has built with his grandson from the time his grandson was, was like, you know, three apples high. Putting the essays in there allowed me to really... Um, show Gabe the protagonist's feelings for his grandfather at a really visceral level and to allow him to connect what he was seeing now and what what he was noticing um, from his grandfather that he was losing Um, but being able to kind of go back and remember that this is still the same person I think it's part of of the reason that he's able to continue going on as the caregiver um, because it is a struggle and he's only 18 years old he's trying to 
graduate high school. He's probably at the point of thinking about what he might want to do after that. And, and you've got him stumbling along with um, interpersonal relationships. He's got a close friend, perhaps his only friend, and then he's, he's trying to make connections with the popular girls to no avail, right? That's right. <laughs> and so you got all these high school he, he kind of geek meets nerd, right? I mean, he he definitely is. He's kind of he's kind of this unassuming character that you wouldn't necessarily even notice around your high school. But he's a good writer, and 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 he's also very committed to his grandfather. But there's a scene early on. I want the reason I set up this with the essay discussion was that you've got a little essay that you put in the book early on, where he's reflecting upon a happier time with his father and his grandfather. You know that time when the father and the grandfather get the new mitt out and they work it over with the linseed and the oil and they I don't know how you did it when you were growing up but exactly I, the same. We, we, we wrapped them in a uh, rubber in there, um, couple, put a ball in there and uh, we even put it in the oven for a minute or two you know I've done that before have you done that mm-hmm. okay okay so baseball is a part of what you like to write and think about I love yeah. baseball I, I think baseball can you got your Cubs hat on I do I do <laughs> you shouldn't have said that out loud because now my Philadelphia friends are going to be calling me up say, saying Why, where's your Phillies hat yeah, exactly uh, the uh, the sport of baseball to me I think is 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 able to be fit into almost any story because I think that it's one of these sports that goes beyond just being a sport it, it kind of connects families it connects generations it's one of these sports that until they started using the shift recently, really never has changed that much. (laughs) And um, I think it allows people to kind of connect. So I just remember being being younger and my grandfather and my father, almost that similar same scene that I I wrote in the book um, definitely happened in my life. And I just, it's just, it just always brings me back to the moment where I, where I felt like, all right, I was part of this, this club and the club happened to be the lineage of my family. So I wanted to kind of create the same kind of feeling in No Sad Songs and showed just how important um, Gabe, his father, who he, who he lost, and his grandfather were to each other before his grandfather, you know, was diagnosed. Yeah, and this is the way you got these titled. This is personal essay number two. And Mr., how do you pronounce the teacher's name? Uh, Mastro. Mast- Mastro. Mastro. Ma- uh, Mastrocola. <laughs> Mastrocola. And, and the title of this essay is Leather and Pipe Tobacco, and it starts out, you know, with... Uh, the, the glove and what they're doing to kind of work it in and uh, don't don't forget to keep it clean, kid, and all these kinds of things. And then you, you get to a part where they've kind of worked the glove over and it's time for a catch, as they like to say. So you want to pick it up there? I do. Grandpa wound back and tossed the ball. The top half caught the sun and gleamed in white. The bottom half was the dark side of the moon. The laces flipped and twirled, and I fought hard to keep myself from jumping out of the way and disappointing Grandpa. Then I felt leather make contact with leather. The weight gathered in the pocket. There was a soft snap as my bare hand clamped over the front of the glove. Would you look at that? My grandson's a freaking natural. The next Willie Mays, Dad said. The next Willie Mays. I often think about moments like these. The ones that feel so light and carefree at the time, but that carry with them much heavier insights. It's only in the future, after time has beaten the ever-loving crap out of you, that you realize what was actually taking place on a day like that. And it reminds me of one of Robert Frost's most famous poems, which also happens to appear in one of my favorite books of all time, The Outsiders. I may have read S.E. Hinton's most popular book way back in middle school, but I will never forget the sage insight Johnny Cade gives to Pony Boy through Frost's words. They still ring in my ears. Nature's first green is gold, her hardest hue to hold, her early leaves a flower, 
but only so an hour. Then leaf subsides to leaf, so Eden sank to grief. So dawn goes down today, nothing gold can stay. When the ball popped my mitt that day, so many years ago, when I could barely see over the shoulders of a cricket, and I squeezed it before it flipped lifelessly to the grass, I had held on to more than just the ball. I had held that gold in my hand, the hardest hue, and Gramps and Dad recognized it immediately, for they had once held the same hue in their own hands. Their appreciation for the gift that had once been mysteriously stolen from them, their youth, was the catalyst for all the smiles and laughter these two produced in my honor. But for them, that first youthful hue was far behind them, just a distant blip that wouldn't even register on a satellite image. For them, dawn had long ago gone down today, and the only gold they'd see again would exist within the DNA they'd pass along to me. These days, I'm not sure I possess the hue anymore. I'm 18 years old, and for me, the light is already starting to fade. But I'm lucky. For Gramps and for Dad, men whose youth and energy once injected jolts of electricity into anything they touched, the flame has already been extinguished. And nothing they or I or even God could do would ever change that fact. So you've got a nice scene that turned very introspective here. And that's what I love about the personal essay is that you can kind of create that scene and then go right into the character's head and, and pluck out those feelings that um, are being created from his memory. Um, and in it, you also get a chance to see how his interactions with his grandfather made a huge impact on his life. All right. Well, listeners, when we come back, we're going to have uh, another reading from No Sad Songs. We're going to do the Writing Life segment. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about um, the book that uh, the middle grade series book that came out in September. So stay with us. Hey, listeners, I'm here with Kevin Jarunas. He's the mastermind behind Advent Coworking, where I hang out and do this podcast. And Kevin, how you doing, man? I'm doing all right, Landis. Thank so you. So we got a big, big day. We are coming up in just shortly on the fourth anniversary of Advent Coworking, right? Woo! Yes. Yeah, how about that? And this place is, uh, you know, I, I tell people I feel younger every time I walk in here. You've got this uh, this vibe here. Let's talk about the vibe, okay? Sure. It's really hard to describe what it is until you just feel it. Yeah. But I think yeah. it's a combination of we have a hired art curator, so we have yeah. local artwork that gets swapped out on the walls every three months. Um, a lot of the furniture our members are working on every day is custom fabricated by folks in North Carolina. Uh, we have music going of a certain tone and volume and thing, and it's the way the space is laid out, the way the furniture is, the way the offices are, the way the meeting rooms all like it's all very intentional. Yeah, and you got you got open space for people who want to have kind of a flex membership, and then you've got offices with glass walls for people that want to, you know, close the door, and, and, and but then you get them together, right? You get the sort of the flex people and the office people together with events, right? Yeah, we do all kinds of programming as well. So every day of the week, there's something going on, whether you're going out for Dollar Tacos on Tuesdays or going to Happy Hour on Fridays or going to a Tech Talks that we do every other month. There's something for everyone. And if you want to take a break, we make it easy for you to connect. But it is about having a space to get your work done, right? And to feel good about it when you're doing it. So one of your three unique features is you care about the people who work here. So talk about that. Yeah, it should feel like a no-brainer, but we do actually care about our members. A lot of spaces, you're just another number in the pot of revenue. So we want to know how can we help you be more productive? How can we help you grow? And how can we help you collaborate? What do you need? Do you need help promoting your events? Do you want to connect with someone? What can we do? Do you have ideas? Do you have feedback? Do you have issues? We'll take all that and use it and do things with it. Yeah, y'all have helped me run the wireless printer. You've helped me get here and get corn here in the studio. Yeah, you, you do things like that. You help the old members you know, with technology, right? <laughs> well, anyone and everyone we will help, Anyone yes. and everyone you'll help, even even the old guys. Right? Well, Kevin, look, keep, keep up with the great work. Four years is a huge accomplishment. I know you're proud of it. Thank you very much. Our team is really doing everything here. 
Charlotte Readers Podcast and host Landis Wade are grateful to you for listening to this show. If you like the show, please leave a short written review on Apple Podcasts, also known as iTunes, or the podcast platform of your choice, because your review helps authors share their stories with more listeners. Thank you for your support. We're back with uh, Frank Morelli, author of No Sad Songs, and also please return to Norbert M. Finkelstein. All right, let's, uh, let's move, uh, Frank, to uh, sort of theme of the book here, promise, keeping a promise. This seemed to kind of go throughout the, the book. This character, Gabe, uh, is against all these obstacles, um, and he feels like he's keeping – what kind of promise is he trying to keep? Well, in, early on in the book, he talks about how his father had kind of made a promise, like a promise to himself, that he would never allow his own father, who was Gabe's grandfather, to wind up in a facility, and that he wanted to be able to be his caregiver until the end. And, you know, Gabe loses his father early on in the story, and when, he, when, when that happens, Gabe kind of takes that promise onto himself. It's kind of an unspoken promise that he's taking. He hasn't actually made the promise with anybody else except for himself. But he wants to live up to what his father would have. And I think part of that is because he never really gets a chance to mourn his parent, the loss of his parents. As soon as he loses them, he's thrust into this situation where he's taking care of his grandfather and then basically his uncle too. And he's still trying to make his way through school. And it's just everything is kind of swirling around him. So I feel like the, the promise that he's trying to keep to make sure that he is the person that takes care of his grandfather till the end is a an unrealistic promise that he makes to himself but it's one that keeps him kind of connected to his parents and to his mm -hmm. father he's especially. trying to honor his father exactly by keeping this promise but in doing so and trying to keep this promise in the face of everything that's going on around him it affects his personal relationships with others right it does yeah. and and even beyond that it affects his his life and maybe even puts his life in jeopardy because all of the you know the tasks that are involved in being a caregiver combined with all the other tasks in his life are just too much for him and he, he i don't think he was expecting how difficult it was going to be to take care of the person who he's known his whole life um so he winds up getting himself into a little bit of, of a pickle here yeah and and, the, and he gets himself into several jams but one of the jams he gets into was um he's out doing something on his bicycle when his grandfather takes the car, his car, and actually hits a young child, doesn't kill the child, but injures the child, and there's a search by the police to try to find out who did it. And this car is parked in the garage, and he ends up taking the fall for his grandfather. Or at least trying to take Try the He's trying to take the fall for his grandfather. And the police aren't necessarily wanting to believe him based upon their investigation, but they have no choice when he confesses. That's right. And they end up in court, and his friends are trying to talk him out of it, and he's trying to tell his friends to mind their own business. Exactly. A lot of this is that he wants to try to take all of these responsibilities upon himself. And I think a lot of people in the world try to do that. Um, but, it's, it's again, it's an unrealistic uh, charge for anybody to, to do anything without the help of others, especially your, your, your closest friends. So, yeah, he winds up in the courtroom, and uh, there's a pretty – Traumatic young adult style uh, courtroom drama that occurs um, where Gabe takes the stand and his um, his friends kind of burst into the courtroom. Yeah, they burst into the courtroom at the time the judge is about to sentence him to two years in federal prison. That's right. Right. All right, you want to pick it up where the judge says he's inclined to hear out to his friend who's stormed into the courtroom? Sure. 
Mr. Lascuda, I am inclined to hear this out, the crypt keeper says. Approach the stand. I don't even remember walking from my chair to the witness box, but suddenly I'm standing up there with my hand on a book, swearing I'll finally tell the damn truth. And then John takes the baton from Sophia and pounces on me before my ass is even touching wood. His litigation style proves to be much less measured than Sophia's. You didn't hit that kid, did you? He shouts, as if he was starring in the movie A Few Good Men. I don't respond. I'm completely startled. John seems like he's not going to give me a chance to say a word. You never drove the car that day, did you? You're not the one responsible, are you? You're just covering, Gabe. You stupid freaking idiot. You're covering. There are streams of tears running down his cheeks. And for some reason, I feel the same stinging croach at the corner of my eyelids. My throat feels like it's coated in molasses and wallpapered with, co with cotton balls. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. There's no one to rescue me from this moment. So I just stare down at Gramps and think about how much I love him and Dad and Mom and even Nick. And I think about how I'd do anything, literally anything, to protect them. And then the strangest thing happens. Gramps opens his eyes wide and he looks at me. I mean, he really looks at me, the way he used to at baseball games. And when I'd fall off my bike and skin my knees, and he'd wipe them down with a cool cloth and slather a bunch of neosporin on the wounds. He looks at me with all the recognition in the world, and he says, Keep your nose clean, kid. Please, keep it clean. And there's nothing more I can do for him. I know it now. He knows it. Nick knows it. And now an entire courtroom full of strangers knows it. I'm not guilty, I say to the tabletop. Someone else was driving the car. Gramps sits at the table, still look, looking at me with the eyes he had ten years ago, with that gentle smile that makes me feel, at least for a moment, like a little kid again. So Gabe is willing to commit perjury, uh, take uh, the fall for his grandfather, um, because he's afraid of what's going to happen to his grandfather if they put him in prison or in an institution, because he's sure that they can't care for him the way he, he can care for him. Exactly. And I think, again, it goes back to that promise that he made to himself through his father that he just wants to live up to. And he knows that this will be the last chance for him to kind of keep that going. He's willing to put himself in danger and in jail, which is not the best decision in the world, just to, to keep that connection. Yeah, unless there's less you think you know sort of how things have turned out. This is not the end of the book. Some things unfold, uh, some some relationships uh, dissolve, and the question is, will they come back together? And uh, what's going to happen to Gramps and what's going to happen to Gabe for what he did in court and everything that's going around in his head. And I guess, Frank, you, you were thinking about this book for a while before you wrote it. Right? I was, I yeah. was. Now, what is it um, that you hope your audience will take away most from this book? There's so many things that I think that I want them to take away from it. Um, I guess I'll pick two two things overall. The main thing I want them to take away from it is an understanding that Alzheimer's and caregiving overall is something that's probably going to become more and more prevalent in everybody's lives as, as we go forward. If you look at some of the statistics out from the Alzheimer's Association, for example. So I wanted the people to understand just how difficult it is to be a caregiver and how it's important for you to seek out support. And then if you don't have that support, you're probably fighting a losing battle. You're fighting a losing battle anyway when you're dealing with Alzheimer's. But you can make things a lot better for everybody if you accept help from others. And then I guess that leads into the second thing I want people to take, and that is that your friends are probably the, your friends and your family are probably the most important things that exist in your life. 
they're there when, when you do wrong, when you do things that you didn't, you're not proud of, that they're still there. And Gabe learns that over the course of, of this book, um, where he doesn't really want to accept help from, from the people that are around him. He wants to kind of go it alone. He wants to keep them out of it. Uh, but when he realizes that he needs to have them in, their li- in his life, they're there. And even when he doesn't want them to be there, they're still there. So I want people to just kind of, readers to take that lesson from it and just understand that you need to fall back on the supports that you have in your life. You mentioned how this is going to affect a lot of lives in the future. We had on the show Ann Campanella who read her memoir, uh, Motherhood Lost and Found. She's part of the All's Authors community that you're now part of with this No Sad Songs book. You took it from a different approach than she did. And there are a lot of other authors out there writing about their experiences with uh, family members who have dementia who are taking even different approaches to it. What do you think where do you think the value lies in both for the author and the reader in telling these stories? Well, just to speak about all his authors and, and their collection of over 200 different books that they have in their library, it's a great resource. Um, but basically it provides an opportunity for people who are going through an Alzheimer's journey to basically understand that there are other people out there sharing the same experiences. Um, I know that when I was watching my parents care for my grandfather, there were things that happened that I thought, this is this is the only place on earth where this is happening. If I would have had a place to go or something to read where I was able to see that other people were also going through it, just that feeling would have made me feel a lot better about it, just that knowledge. Um, so I, th- I feel like just being able to, to speak your mind and talk and share your story with other people out there who are going through the same situation is, is, is value in itself. Um, and of course, then there's other authors out there like Anne, um, and like other authors in, in the all's authors, um, group that are writing books that are more, more like manuals and, and ways that you can kind of use tips to kind of effectively help your life. Um, this, this book, No Sad Songs, I think is effective just because it helps you to understand the feelings and the emotions behind it. And you can connect, connect with, with some of the things that my protagonist is feeling, even, even when he feels kind of selfish about things or when he's, when he's, when he's not necessarily happy about being a caregiver. Those are kind of feelings that I think it's important for other people out there to realize that they exist and it's okay to have them. All right, well, that's a good transition here. We're going to talk about the uh, writing life for a minute. Um, you've been a writer for, uh, I mean, you're not that old, Frank. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I've, been, I've been writing probably since I was about 20 years old. I'm 40 now, so about yeah. 20 years. I yeah. started doing, like, journalism, writing for newspapers. Um, and I guess I've been writing fiction and short stories for about 10 or 15 of those years. Yeah, and which medium do, do you prefer? Oh, I definitely prefer writing fiction uh, over journalism. And uh, and I used to love writing short stories, uh, but ever since I started writing long, long form, uh, I, just, I don't think I'll even ever go back and write another short story. I just, I just love writing books. I love mm-hmm. being able to put chapters together and think about innovative ways to kind of tie stories together and create structures that nobody's ever done before. And we talk about routine sometimes in this segment. Um, as a middle school teacher, where do you find time for a routine, if you even have one? Do you have a routine? <laughs> I definitely do. Uh, I it, Obviously, when I'm at school teaching, I, that's really all I have time for there. So I try to carve out time in the mornings uh, before I go to, go to work. Uh, I write for about an hour usually. And that's it, early, right? It's pretty early. Yeah. Um, you know, my classes start at 8, 8 a.m., so you know, I'm probably 
sitting there writing at like six, five, six in the morning. And then a lot of times what usually happens when I don't wake up in time to do that is that I wind up doing it at night after, uh, after I get back from, from work and I, I put in a couple of hours. And then of course the summer is like my godsend. So I just spend pretty much every waking minute of the summer writing whatever I can, trying to get as much set up for the, for the school year as I possibly can. Now in your bio that I read, which you provided in part to me, you talked about living in High Point with your best friend and muse. Are those the same? They are the same. And who is that? Uh, that's, her name is Alex. Uh, we have we met in New York City, and we've been together for 17 years. We never got married, but we basically are married. And uh, she's actually the illustrator of uh, Please Return to Norbert M. Finkelstein. Okay, good. And and so how is, does she serve as your muse? Usually the muse hangs out in the, the <laughs> in the cloud somewhere. Yeah, she is a a more hands on muse. I think yeah. uh, she does. She read your work. She yeah. always reads my work. We oftentimes um, have brainstorming sessions. A lot of the ideas that I come up with are, are ideas that I I invented, and then we talk about them, and she gives me other pathways, and I decide to change it. Um, main way that she I think that she helps me is that she believed in me. From the beginning, when she first, the, the very first time we met, we talked about writing. Uh, we talked about writing books together. Mm-hmm. And uh, from that moment, she believed in, in my ability to do it and actually get books out there in the world, which I never had met anyone else who had actually had that belief in me. So just from that standpoint alone, uh, I mean, she's been probably the best thing that's ever happened to me. So what gives you the most pleasure about writing? I love there's so many different aspects of it. There's two parts I love the most. I love planning out a story and putting together like an, like a massive outline of all the little events that are going to happen, trying to figure out how the story is going to be stitched together. And then before actually having written it, just being able to sit there and hold that in my hand and know that this is an idea that I'm going to bring to life. Um, and then writing that last word is such a great feeling you like the end I love it it just feels it's such a feeling of accomplishment after you've written 70 80,000 words before you have to write it five more times that's that's exactly right yeah yeah, so who are your influencers in this writing life of yours well I would I would have to go back to some authors that I've read and and say that I love reading Hemingway and I love reading um, Harper Lee and Essie Hinton I uh, just like their style. They they kind of always connect to readers like that are the same kind of readers that I'm trying to connect to. So they have a lot of influence just from a writing standpoint. But then there's so many other authors that are that are current authors that I, that have influenced me. I would say all I would say the all's authors and Campanella is definitely at the top of that list. Um, just her passion for for Alzheimer's, um, you know, research and 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 support is just amazing. Um, and I would also say that I probably look at, at works by people like Amber Smith, who's also a Charlotte area author. Yeah, she's part of this season. Yeah. She, she yeah. is, and she, uh, she's just a phenomenal author. Um, Jennifer Niven is another one. She, uh, she actually uh, is the blurb that's on the front cover of No Sad Songs. I just love watching how authors like that interact with their readers. They're always available. They answer every person that sends a tweet at them. It's really not mm-hmm. easy to do that when, you have, you know, when you're a New York Times bestselling author, but they show me the kind of author that I hope to be one day. So when was the first time you felt like you could call yourself a writer? <laughs> <laughs> I'm still trying to work on that part. Yeah. I, th- I think it's, it's kind of introduce yourself. It's, now? it's or, kind of it, that it, or middle school teacher. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of in, in flux. I think a lot of times I feel like I'm a writer and other times I feel like I'm just muddling around like other writers probably feel. Um, but I, I guess when, um, 
when the cover was finally revealed for No Sad Songs and had my name on the front, that's when it really started to hit home that I was going to be going out there on the road mm-hmm. and talking to readers and having you know news agencies contact me and interview me. Uh, when those things started to happen, that's when I started to feel like, yeah, this is this is now my life. This is my pathway. Well, so I sit here um, looking at you as we talk and your baseball hat and your enthusiasm for this. I can see many years ahead uh, of you uh, sitting in the chair writing some interesting stories. Um, like and, and, and you're you're smiling when you do it. So. How do you plan to balance, you know, teaching and writing? People ask me that all the time. Um, colleagues of mine are like, well, when are you going to give up the teaching thing and just go full into writing? And I did actually, a couple years ago, take a year off of teaching. And, and during that time, I wrote no sad songs and kind of planned a lot of it out. And uh, it was helpful. It was really great. But at the same time, I really missed being in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, the energy level. Yeah. And I, and I feel like I had, I actually had more discipline in terms of like, creating a process and making sure that I wrote every day when I was in the classroom. So I feel like I, I feel like I have it down. I've been teaching for 17 years and writing for almost that entire amount of time, or actually longer than that amount of time. And by this time, at this point in my teaching career, I have a really good, you know, process that I use to keep myself balanced. Um, so as long as, you know, if, if my headmaster is listening right now, as long <laughs> as they don't make me teach 20 classes, I should be all right. <laughs> yeah. So, um, in addition to kids uh, throwing spitballs in your class, what else interferes with your writing? Um, watching sports probably interferes yeah. with my writing a lot. Uh, oftentimes, if, if my teams happen to be you know, in the playoffs or even if they're just playing a meaningless game, I'm usually sitting there trying to watch it. Um, lately, none of my teams have been doing that great, so I've been writing a lot. Uh, but other than that, I, I mean, I, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty disciplined. I love writing. I feel like it's one of my it's not only like a profession for me, but it's also a pastime. So I, I kind of just enjoy um, sitting down with a glass of lemonade and just, you know, writing all day long and then having a chance to read what I wrote to somebody else. I just, that's, that's just one of my favorite things in life. One of the things I think you mentioned to me, which I think is important uh, for writers to sort of, you know, get their heads around is finding out what it is, you know, what area they need to be writing in and, and you talked about that earlier on the podcast here about how you were thinking about writing this and that and the other and sometimes do you think writers spread themselves too thin rather than trying to find you know the nucleus of where they should be oh definitely and, and I, I, I'm, I've been a culprit of that myself I, like I mentioned earlier I started writing mostly stories for adults and they were all over the place um, stories about you know rogue baseball teams that mm-hmm. had ghosts on them. I mean, all kinds of crazy things that were, that were, that were meant for adults. Um, but it just wasn't my voice. And I think that's, that's when you need to, what you need to think about if you're get, if you're getting ready to get into writing is what, what voice do you have and who will that connect to? And for me, it just was a natural fit since I get up in front of a classroom of, you know, middle, middle school students every single day. Well, that, fi- that's where yeah. my voice would be. <laughs> yeah, I just heard a final writing life question here, but uh, you write for these middle schoolers. What, are they reading your books on their phones or something? Or what? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I would say this. Um, yes, are they reading your books? They yeah. are. And, and, and the first day that... For extra credit or what? The first day that I walked into my classroom <laughs> and there were four or five of my students reading No Sad Songs, it was, yeah. was, was, was definitely a trip. Um, yeah, but they, they, they do. They read them on. They read a lot of um, electronic books. Yeah. I, I can't really do that myself. I need <laughs> I need to have it in my hand, the paper, yeah. and turn the pages. But um, you know, whatever whatever gets people reading, is great. That's good. 
All right, well, let's shift uh, now to the to the book that's the middle grade book. It came out in September. Uh, we're actually recording this before September, so I haven't seen the whole book yet, but it'll, it, it's out now, you know, when, when this is being released to the public. Uh, tell us about the, uh, the title. It's called uh, Please Return to Norbert M. Finkelstein, and uh, basically the book itself is a— Yeah, but who is Norbert M. <laughs> Where does that name come from? <laughs> that is a very long story, yeah. but I will tell it here. Yeah. Um, when I wrote the book, I, I wrote the book because I needed an escape, and the escape was, was that Alex and I, we had, we, we, uh, we had adopted a dog— we adopt a lot of animals and take animals in from the shelter. And it was the first dog that we adopted. And uh, we ha- he was six years old when we adopted him. His name is Mike. We dedicated the book to him. And we had him for three years. When we, when we adopted him, he had, like, this little lump on his back. And the doctor said, oh, it's nothing. And three years passed, and it wound up turning out to be something. Mm-hmm. And we, by the time we figured out what was wrong with him, there was nothing that they could really do. So we just kind of were just just kind of enjoying having Mike in our lives for like the last week or two of his, of his life. And <laughs> we, uh, we always used to call him Stein for some reason. That was like a nickname that we made up for him. So we, we wound up creating, Alex and I wound up creating this character, Norbert M. Finkelstein, because we wanted to just write something, take us away from this like bad feeling of, of the fact that we're going to lose one of our best friends. And we literally, we just talk about ideas. I would write, I would write entries for this journal that, that this, this teacher was writing and then we just read them we'd read them to mike even though he probably wasn't listening and it made us feel a lot better and it just turned out that this norbert m finkelstein character wound up just being so much like our dog um in that he's kind of this character that on the outside is very soft and um he gets pushed around a little bit Everybody kind of likes him, but at the same time, people take advantage of him. So he's a teacher. He yeah. is a teacher. Yeah, this is not. There's none of you in this guy, right? Yeah. Not not as much <laughs> not as much of, of me in this guy as there might have been in, in some other characters. But we got to tell the, the listeners a little bit about Norbert and Finkelstein and, and the cover here too. He, so so he's he's a struggling like sixth yeah. grade language he, arts. Yeah, teacher. but what's his secret? Yeah. His secret is that uh, he is. He is a moon. He's moonlighting as a professional wrestler. Right. And this is, I wouldn't really call it professional either. It's more like semi-professional, right. like local wrestling that he does. He doesn't really want any of his students to know about it, so right. he creates this disguise. But he loses his journal. He loses his journal. And all this information is in his journal. That is right. And you, the reader, happen to have found this journal, or somebody has found the journal, and you are reading along with him. And you're finding out all this different stuff about his life. You're finding out that he also he is facing a lot of the same problems that his own that his own students are facing. Um, you know, coworkers of his kind of bully him, ask get him to do things that they want him to do. Um, he he doesn't really garner a lot of respect. He doesn't really have his life together. And uh, one of the main things that he's doing is he wants to he wants to be able to send his mom on a vacation. And in order to do that, he needs to win a lot of wrestling matches. <laughs> Okay. He's, he's not the greatest wrestler in the world, but he start, He learns as the book goes on. Uh, yeah, he creates a pretty hilarious wrestling identity that's based upon his middle name, which is Mortimer. And he, uh, his wrestling identity is the Mortician, and he dresses up in this Mortician outfit. So you've got on the cover here, you, this cover it actually looks like it could be a journal. It does. And it's got a little sticker on the front, please return to Norbert M. Finkelstein. And there's a somebody's drawn... It looks like it could be a mask the wrestler would put on. It is. It is a yeah. it is a lucha libre mask uh, worn by Mexican wrestlers known as luchadors, and uh, it's meant to keep people's identities concealed, uh, which is actually a, a pretty big part of the book. The idea of being able to find your own identity and figure out who you are and what you're good at. Well, let's give our listeners a little flavor for this book, and you're going to read an entry 
um, that's dated Friday, September the 28th. This is actually the opening entry of the, of, of the book and of the series because there is a second one that is scheduled to come out in, in uh, February of 2020. So this is the first entry is where you pick up his story. Friday, September 28th. If you're reading this, you can assume a very large man is in a state of panic. There's a good chance this man has scoured the streets of Mapleton in search of his lost journal. Promise you won't call it a diary. And now he's terrified someone will rifle through the pages and snoop on all his private thoughts. Can't you just picture the poor guy? He's wearing his bathrobe and a pair of fluffy slippers covered in grease from stumbling around the streets in the dark. His face is covered in patchy stubble from missing a few days of shaving, and his eyes are droopy and bloodshot from lack of sleep. Let's go ahead and assume the large man I speak of is Norbert M. Finkelstein, and that the writer of this very journal, which you now hold, happens to go by the same name. And let's assume this Finkelstein character is a private and secretive young man who can't bear the thought of another human being invading his thoughts. It's not too late for you to do the right thing. Turn back, respect the man's privacy, and return his journal as quickly as you can, and without turning even one more page, or at the very least bury it deep in your backyard so no human will ever lay eyes on it again. Still reading? Now why would you want to go and do something like that? What good does it do you to know a guy's personal secrets, things he wouldn't even tell his own mother? How does it help you to see through the eyes of some out-of-touch adult like a Norbert M. Finkelstein? I mean, other than learning a guy's true feelings, I mean his deep down and not quite polite feelings about some of the most powerful and important people in all of Mapleton, or at least at Mapleton Middle School. I see you're not turning back. You're doing quite the opposite, but I guess I can't hold it against you. Come to think of it, if I found an old journal lying in the street just begging to be read, I'd probably do the same thing as you. Curiosity is a worthy opponent. Just keep in mind, I never wrote in a journal before, so don't hold it against me if I wind up doing a bunch of complaining. Who knows, I may never make it past this first entry, because it's not as if writing in a stupid notebook will solve any of my problems. Just consider yourself warned if you happen to find this treasure chest of my thoughts, and you think you're cute for even reading one more crummy word of this stuff. Creep. All right, it seems like uh, Norbert has a little middle school in him, too. He definitely does. And one of the things that people asked me about when I, when I was writing this book is, you know, how are you going to have an adult narrator for a middle grade book? Is there, that's not really something that, that people have done in the past. And I said, well, I'm going to do it. And the reason for it was because I felt like I wanted to, to allow my readers to see that, you know, you're not alone in having some of these problems. Adults also still face these problems. Uh, I remember when I first started teaching in my first year and I didn't have, any, have it together, and a lot of my students kind of helped me out along the way and helped me learn while, while I was teaching. So I just wanted to kind of ha- create this, this alternative kind of narrator that you don't usually see in middle grade writing, even though he does hold a lot of middle grade uh, aspects. Well, well, I noticed that when you're reading this, that uh, this first reading is in second person. I mean, you're addressing it to uh, the, the reader. That's right. That's right. Now, do you continue this throughout the book, or do you shift to first person, or how do you do that? Uh, for the most part, he doesn't he, he doesn't break the uh, the wall. I guess you could say if you were an actor, he doesn't mm-hmm. break that fourth wall too often. But he does sometimes speak directly to you as the reader, as if you know you're you, you must have found this, and there's there's a reason why you have it in your hands. Because right, um, he calls him a creep for reading it. That's yeah. right. That's right. And in you know when you get into later on in the series, that same kind of thing kind of just continues to happen. Um, I don't want to give away too much about the next book, which I'm, ha- I'm currently working on right mm-hmm. now. But uh, I will say this, it has a completely different narrator as the character. Mm. Okay. So did it, did it feel like this worked for you to narrate through the teacher's perspective? 
It really did. Um, I, first of all, I love epistolary novels that are kind of put together as either like books of letters or books like that are meant to be like journals because they feel like real uh, relics that you're pulling from that character's life. So it just felt real to hold it in to like hold it in your hand and read what he wrote um, in his in his own private pri- in the privacy of his own home. Um, so and for me, being a teacher, it made it it made it easy to kind of. Um, put myself into the character but at the same time I still needed to create this character that had a lot of middle grade aspects to him and that had similar problems to the to the teachers that I'm, I'm sorry to the uh, students that he was teaching and the publisher was uh, well it, she just done a good job with it Alexandra has publisher was fine with you bringing not only the manuscript but the cover as well that's right. She did not. Cre- she actually, the uh, publisher, uh, they have a designer on staff that created that cover. Um, Alex, uh, she actually has uh, done the illustrations that are inside the book. Oh, so they're, it, they're, a comp- oh, they're accompanying illustrations inside. I missed that. Well. I'm sorry. Okay, so so you've got illustrations throughout the book. Mm-hmm. That's right. Pictures of the and, characters, and, and they the... are quite hilarious, as there are so many different crazy wrestling wrestling identities to, ah, okay. to fight against. Okay, so it's great. kind of fun. It's a really fun book. Um, definitely deals with with the idea of bullying and how you can kind of fight that. Um, also about being able to find your own place in life and being proud of what you can do. Um, but it's fun. And, and it's mostly just kind of um, one of these books that when you finish reading it, and you could probably finish reading it in one in one sitting, you're probably going to have a smile on your face and have yeah. laughed a bunch of times. Well, I did when I read No Sad Songs, and I'll, I'll look forward to reading about uh, Mr. Finkelstein and how he gets out of this problem he's got with the kids reading his journal. Tell us where um, where we can find the books. You could find uh, online. You could find either book on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, IndieBound. Um, and IndieBound, just for everyone knows, that that's where you can get it through the independent bookstores. That's right. And, and the independent bookstores can order the book for you too, right? So someone can get it at Park Road Books and other bookstores and. That's right, and you might even be able to just walk into Park Row Books and find some some of the books in there right. as well, yeah. or any of the indie, indie bookstore. But you can definitely order through them. Um, some Barnes and Nobles might also have it, physical copies mm-hmm. of it mm-hmm. out there. You have a website? I do. It's uh, frankmorellirights.com. All right. So uh, what are you going to tell the Philly uh, friends about the Cubs hat when you get back? <laughs> well, I'm going to tell them that the reason— Tell them your, Philly, your, your Philadelphia hat was dirty? Is that— I, You know, yeah. I stopped wearing Philadelphia hats because I, uh, I'm kind of superstitious about my teams, and I noticed that whenever I was wearing a Phil, any Philadelphia team, that whatever team it was that I was wearing, they were not doing very well. So I started wearing team—I started wearing the hats of teams that I kind so of wanted to So you're trying to, 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 to curse bit. the Cubs then, huh? <laughs> As if the, the Cubs needed I know, any more they, help. They, right? I thought they just got over that curse. You know, yeah. And now you're trying to come back. At least that's what I'm going with, so I don't yeah. have to face the heat from all those people in Philly. All right. Well, Frank, thanks so much for uh, coming on the show. Was, I enjoyed reading your book and look forward to, to the others. I appreciate you having me, Landis. Thank you. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. In next week's episode, we have Tim Reinhardt. Tim is the author of Jesus Brother James. And no, this is not a book about Jesus' real brother James. There's a character in the book who is a down-and-out priest who befriends a man who could look the part of Jesus' brother James. The priest passes the man off as the Messiah's brother to another man who has lost the will to live. And this leads to a quest by four characters to find meaning in their lives with the help of the mysterious, religious-looking man who speaks only Aramaic. In addition to reading and discussing the book, Tim discusses his short film work and we listen to a few scenes from those films. For periodic updates about the show and upcoming authors, 
please sign up for the podcast email list at charlottereaderspodcast.com. We promise not to spam you because Landis says that takes too much time. And if you do sign up as a thank you, Landis will give you an ebook complete with illustrations, his first in the Christmas Courtroom Trilogy. Please don't forget our sponsors, Park Road Books and Charlotte Mecklenburg Library. Links to our five sponsors and the resources are on the webpage and in the show notes. You can listen to Charlotte Readers Podcast episodes for free at charlottereaderspodcast.com or at Charlotte Mecklenburg Library's digital branch website. And you can subscribe and listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to get your podcasts. You can find out more about us and our sister shows at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Charlotte Readers Podcast is available on social media, on Facebook at Charlotte Readers Podcast, on Twitter at Charlotte Reader, on Instagram and on LinkedIn at Landis Wade. Until next week, I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. <laughs>